Hello, and welcome back to Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition, hosted by Robin Bronk. It's your moment to hear the unfiltered backstory of Hollywood's biggest stars. So sit back, relax, and listen in, as today, we have the pleasure of welcoming executive producer of Netflix's The Umbrella Academy, Mark Goffman, to the hot seat. Mark Goffman, how are you? I am wonderful, Robin Bronk, how are you? Thanks for taking the time to do this, because I know you are quite busy on lots of projects, secret and otherwise. What do you work on these days? Oh. That you can talk about, or even ones that you can't talk about. I don't don't know why I'm being so generous. Let's hear some secrets. No, there's there's lots going on. Uh, I I, Mostly, I I have this show uh, called The Irrational that is, uh, we shot over the summer for Universal and NBC. It's been an amazing ride. And um, I actually just picked up the option for the actors and we had a mini room on it. Uh, Wait, 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 wait. You're using all this like showbiz speak. (laughs) And believe it or not, they do listen outside of these uh, bubbles. Uh We have a new show called... I'll back up. Correct. So there's a new show based on... Uh, the uh, kind of inspired by the life of a behavioral scientist named Dan Ariely. And he's somebody that I've gotten to know over the years, a really fascinating, fascinating person. Um, And he wrote, he's probably most famous for uh, a book called Predictably Irrational. And he's a professor at Duke. And essentially what the thesis of his book is like most economic theory, it's about, oh, human beings behave rationally. All economic theory was based on for many years. And we make decisions that are smart and thoughtful and weigh the pros and cons. And uh, he kind of said, no, that's absurd. Human beings are incredibly irrational. None of our decisions really follow any logic whatsoever. However, we are highly predictable in our irrationality. And he went on to outline a a bunch of these things and um, kind of pioneered this field. And he's just such a fascinating person. And he was also in a uh, a fire in which he was burned over 70% of his body. And uh, that, you know, he spent three years in the hospital recovering from that and really just a, a dramatic experience. And so it seemed like the perfect kind of, you know, way to take uh, the pain and what he's lived through and really uh, take his ideas and give them a presence in a scripted show. So we cast Jesse Martin, who is a phenomenal actor. We shot in Vancouver over the summer. And um, now, uh, so basically you shoot a pilot, then uh, we are now waiting for the next step, which would be, you know, to go to series, which I hopefully we will be doing very soon. I am, hopefully. And then Umbrella Academy, it's a big hit show. It's in its third season. And it was it's it's set in a universe where 43 women around the world give birth simultaneously. Was it a comic book originally? So Umbrella Academy started as a comic book written by Gerard Way, who's the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, and Gabriel Ba, an amazing illustrator from Brazil. And then it became a TV series for Netflix and Steve Blackman uh, wrote the pilot, and that's really when it all started to congeal, come together. Um, and in season one, 
Uh, I, at the time I had started working, I was still under contract at CBS and had been working on Bull and some shows for them. And then uh, I'd been friendly with Steve and we'd known each other for a while. In fact, I really, I tried to hire him on another show that I had done previously. So we had, you know, a, a good working relationship and uh, he asked me to come on uh, about halfway through season one to assist with the show. And we had such a blast working together that then I came on in season two as an executive producer um, with him. But uh, he's really the, you know, the creative driving force behind the show and an amazing showrunner and really fun to work with him. Well, talk about you for a second, because like you are now you are a showrunner. That's what you do. I think of myself first and foremost as a writer. That's how I started. That's how I came up in the business. And the way television works, it's sort of a, 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 this is all thanks to, I guess, GM and the car industry, because in the 50s, when TV first came around, writers at that time in the movie business were a commodity. And to get some power and authority and take more control over their lives, they worked into all the television contracts and nobody was really paying attention to TV at the time, but the Writers Guild worked into the contracts that writers at a certain point become producers. So you start as a staff writer, then story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer on your way up to executive producer. And then slowly this title of showrunner started to evolve because on a show, on a series where you're doing multiple episodes when you're doing, you know, 10, 13, 22, or sometimes back then 36 episodes in a season, somebody's got to be in charge of all that. And um, whereas in movies, the director is often the one in charge and it's, you know, one, two hour film that they oversee everything from the beginning to end in television, that role tends to be to, for the writer, producer, executive producer, and to differentiate because the word executive producer has so many different meanings um, for anyone from the financier to the rights holders who may never, you know, step on set to the writers in the writer's room, they, you know, the, the term showrunner came around and it's really, it's kind of like a CEO. What do you consider your first big break? Didn't we meet when you were on the West Wing? We did. Yes. So I actually started as a speechwriter. Uh, right, right. Who were you writing speeches for? Well, my my big break was for the State Department, and I, I got offered a, a gig writing under Colin Powell. However, there's a caveat to that story because my security clearance came through literally the same day I got offered a job writing on the West Wing. And oh my God, that is so like parallel universes. Well, so you don't work for the State Department, you're just going to write about it. Exactly. Different universe. Not totally coincidental. I, I, uh, after I graduated college, I traveled around Europe for a while, I was backpacking. Then I wrote for a magazine called Commerce in Belgium, which I'm sure you have a subscription to. And Actually, I do. No. <laughs> I have the digital, like, I'm on digital online with Commerce in Belgium. Then I went to the. You must have been a fun young college graduate oh. showing off your commerce yeah. in Belgium. You know what? It was a blast living in Brussels, which was the headquarters of the European community. And they have the stagiaire program where students from all of the uh, European community countries come to Brussels for like a one year kind of training period. 
and they threw the best parties uh, every uh, like almost every week. And everyone was from a different country. So I felt like I got to know what it was like to, you know, to visit Spain and all, all these great places. So that was a, a blast. And then I decided I thought I needed to do something kind of important, you know, with my life is I went to the Harvard Kennedy School and got a master's in public policy and wanted to go into speech writing. But I really loved writing in some form. And I thought that would be the way to express it. And then this was around 2002 and the Iraq war was kind of around the corner and was having some qualms about that. It just didn't seem like the right way to go. And there was this amazing show on television that was very much a, a fantasy version of, of what it would be like to work in, in the White House. And I really fell in love with that. And I, I wrote a spec episode of it, um, just based on my experiences. And that wound its way to the production. And so I, I got a meeting with Aaron Sorkin and then, you know, it took a few months, but I was sort of doing some stuff on the side, waiting for the security clearance to come through. And literally the, the same day, they both happened. And I felt like I could, you know, uh, it would be better to write for the fictional government than the actual one. And I, maybe I could actually reach more people. So. <laughs> so when you're on West Wing, what was the spec script about? Did they ever adopt portions of it? Yeah, we did use pieces of it. I had a big story about Leo McGarry, who was kind of, you know, a, a hero to me on the show. Who was he played by? That was uh, John Spencer. Yeah, he was great. What was Leo's role? He was chief, chief staff, right? And just an amazing character, amazing human being. And so I, I wrote an episode that was that had him as kind of the, the central point uh, in the episode. And then I had some other little little stories like about trying to abandon the penny um, because I think that I still it's kind of amazing to me today that we haven't gotten rid of the penny. So, yes, my someone asked me for or my daughter, I think they had to pay a parking thing. And she says, do you have a quarter? I'm like, yeah, not since 1985. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. So you were kind of a wonky political wonk. I, I love that stuff. I love policy. I love still today, just, you know, get up reading about it. And um, I, I feel like that's, that was part of what I wanted to do as a writer was, you know, take some of the disillusionment and some of the ideas that I'd learned both at the Kennedy school and experienced working government and really write kind of my ideal version of those. And that's what I, I like so much about getting to write and create a world is it can dictate both the themes and the ideas and what the characters go through and hopefully, you know, shed some, shed some light on uh, how to make the world work a little better. So what was it like? I mean, I visited the set, you know, some when because a lot of members of the West Wing or a lot of cast members were and creative were members of the Creative Coalition and still are. So I, what I remember is and having been a former lobbyist, it was very seriously like you guys like were it was harder to get onto your set than it was to get into the actual White House. I remember <laughs> that. It's like really <laughs> uh, it, yes, it, it may have been. Uh, but you know, but first, I actually want to take a moment, though, Robin, to give you a huge shout out for the Creative Coalition. Ah, I did have that first experience at one of the inaugural balls, you know, back in probably 2004, 
where where I got to know a little bit about the organization. And, and initially, I thought it was just the organization that threw amazing parties in Washington. And as I got to know you and what you guys do, I mean, it really is incredible um, how much we need advocacy for the arts. And I don't know where we would be without you both. Uh-huh. Well, honestly, we're only as good as you and, and your wife, Lindsay, who's also a great creative. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, kind of hurt. I, I, I don't want to say hurt everyone because that's, you know, just, just organized. Well, you do an amazing job and I, I don't know how. So thank you. Well, you know, I, I had training in DC and, and that in that little place. So tell me about the writer's room of the West Wing. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with your ideas? Was it ripped from the headlines or did you guys just, what did you, did you track committee hearings? Like, what did you do? Because it mirrored a lot of current events. There were a, a lot of ways that stories came about. Everyone was incredibly informed and we had fantastic advisors, everyone from Ken Duberstein, who was a chief of staff to Ronald Reagan, to um, Dee Dee Myers and, uh, and Gene Sperling, who was an economic advisor. Uh, so oh, we, and Gene Sperling, I love him. But he'd always, yeah. no matter what the conversation, you know, I'm a consultant to the West. <laughs> so and Gene, you're great. That that's what he's proud of after all, everything that he's uh, after everything, yeah, he always worked that, and not that he's you know. And we had access to people. I can remember at one point calling, you know, people from the CIA, uh, former heads, and and they would get on the phone and talk to us because the show had reach, and we would want everything to to be and feel authentic. And so even if we didn't do it exactly how you know an event may play out we would always try to at least talk to as many experts as we could and get expert opinions. Aaron Sorkin would also often ask us for like thought pieces. So he'd say, let's, you know, let's just get the the smartest points of view about entitlements or about private accounts or any, you know, it could be something as big as, uh, you know, America's role in as a policeman for, uh, you know, wars in other countries to, you know, minute policies. I think one of the first pitches I ever had, I was dating Lindsay and she's from Indiana and I got confused. Well, I was more more than confused. I was really annoyed that in Indiana, the time change is within the same state. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. My two daughters, you know, went to university, Indiana University. Yeah, it's And so you never really know what time zone you're in. And so I pitched that as a story. We ended up using it in the beginning of season four as the way in which half of the motorcade gets left behind because they they were thinking they still had time. And (laughs) which which worked pretty. It was 20 hours in America, which was a really fun episode. And, uh, you know, so episodes can come about all different ways. And then, you know, some people would give it based on their experiences. So we had other people who were speech writers in, in the writer's room. Aaron really wanted uh, a lot of people with experience as writers, both within government as well as, you know, within the writer's room. So it was, uh, it was an incredibly fun, really bright group to sit with. Was there any, was there any um, people who just left the Hill? Did you have people with Hill experience in the writer's room? For administration experience, um, there was uh, Eli Addy was a speechwriter for Al Gore, 
And he was on the show prior to me. He came on in season three. And uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, of course, had lots of experience on the Hill. Yeah. And so yeah, he, but, but that, I, thought, I think when I was in DC, I was the only person who wasn't one of your consultants. Thank you very much. Like every operator was like, you know, I consult with the West Wing. <laughs> well, next next time around, we we need you. Um, it was fun. It was funny. I actually, I think you arranged for this. One spring break, I was in LA. I'd be working in LA, so my kids came with me. And at that point, they're like seven, four, and three, or seven, five, and four. And so you very nicely and kindly arranged for us to like take them on a tour of the set. And again, it's like, like you have you had guards there, like yeah. even when I mean, it was just like they were like White House guards. And it was funny. My one of my daughters, who was five at the time, says, "Well." I've been in the West Wing and it's not really that great. This set. <laughs> and I was like, cause it, cause some intern was showing us around and he was so proud of it. And I was like, okay, Kira, shut up. It's great. They're really proud of it. It's much more uh, camera friendly than the actual white house. The halls are oh, it's bigger. Yeah. Way bigger. A lot more windows. So you can shoot through uh, the hallways and into um, offices from the outside the real West Wing feels so cramped. Now, did you guys, did they have you in because they loved it so much? And Yeah, this was during the Bush White House. They were really welcoming. They were very friendly. They, every time I was in D.C., we would go, we would meet with some speech writers. We would meet with uh, communications people. We had a really good kind of a communication with them. And sometimes we would find out sort of what's on the agenda and vice versa. I actually found out later from a friend in state that very often when an entourage was going abroad, they would find out what episodes of the West Wing were playing at the time um, because they could be used as kicking off uh, pieces. They could be used to help um, start a conversation if the show happened to be touching on something that they were going to be talking about in negotiations. So. It, it is so interesting because I'm a political, you know, a wonky wonk. And um, you guys did with West Wing was you made it, you sexed it up in a good way. It was, you know, it made debt ceiling interesting, you know? And it was like, it wasn't just the weirdo political geeks like me that cared about what happened on the Hill. So I thank you for that. You were, you were like, you big banged Capitol Hill. <laughs> I, I wrote an episode called Shutdown, which was about the debt ceiling and getting through a, a shutdown. And I based it on actually two things. One was the Ronald Reagan had a like a four hour shutdown of government, which was one of the first at the time where they couldn't agree. And what he did, which I thought was sort of brilliant, was... He said, you know what? I'm going to go visit the Capitol. I'm going to go to Congress and beg them to turn back on the government because this is too important. And he actually got out of his car and walked down Pennsylvania Avenue. I do. That was, that's a very famous. Last like 500 yards. And I thought this is the most brilliant public relay because there are all the cameras and I wanted to capture that. But then I took for kind of the brinksmanship, the Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton shutdown which lasted several weeks and was a much 
more public relations debacle, I think, on everyone's side and became. Yeah, yeah, I remember it was very acrimonious. And I just wanted to show how the, you know, both the personalities as well as the philosophies got entangled. And then it became, you know, a battle of, of wits. How do you get out of it? And what chess moves is going to turn the public opinion? So it's funny be- that you said that. I always, again, as a lobbyist, I would look at it like a chess game. Mm. And because there was always, you make one move and you have to know what the next moves behind you are going to be. So, but now I just work for the arts. <laughs> so, did you like working with Martin Sheen and Allison Janney? You're just such great people. Everything. I was so spoiled. Richard Schiff, who's a mutual great friend of ours. Yes. I've gotten to work with Richard now on many shows, which has been a real blast. And and my wife has gotten to work with him on The Good Doctor. So, uh, and, and I've gotten to know his, his family. And so, you know, you make lifelong friendships on, on a show like that. It's, it's an incredibly intense project. Any show is. But I was really spoiled for this to be essentially my first show to work with this caliber of people. And they were incredibly generous and welcoming. And you kind of knew not that you would try not to do something well, but I always knew that whatever I wrote, the actors were going to elevate and our directing team was going to elevate. It was a really interesting setup of directors. We had Tommy Schlamy, who was uh, incredibly talented director, kind of at the helm, and then two other directors who worked under him or with him, so that we had a constant feed. And they directed the vast majority of the, of the episodes, but then we also brought in outside directors too. What do you think the most controversial episode was? Mm. I don't know. I, I would say one really sad commentary is that I think so much of the show, the, the reality today, is so far beyond anything that we imagined could be controversial that it would pale and feel quaint today by the politics of what we're seeing now. You got that right, brother. Okay, Sleepy Hollow. You were the executive producer slash showrunner on that. Talk about Sleepy Hollow. Oh, Sleepy Hollow. So <laughs> this show is about Ichabod Crane. Which was so far removed from... Your other stuff. How did you get involved? I've always loved genre and I've always been a fan of science fiction and fantasy. And I kind of have these two speeds. I like doing projects like obviously like the West Wing. And uh, I recently did a project about um, a gentleman named Carlos Ghosn, who was CEO of Nissan and escaped from Japan to Lebanon in, in a music box. And it's really a fascinating story we can talk about later. And so I like these great true stories and kind of uh, epic battles of, about ideas and, and the way uh, the world works and how I think, you know, it has a, has a basis in industry and economy. And then I like doing really goofy, crazy, big, nutty, dysfunctional family shows. <laughs> I got to do a documentary film again right after my wife and I got married about ventriloquism. And yeah, we premiered that movie. You did. I reason, you know, I uh, think I owe to the Creative Coalition. We're a Spotlight Award 
celebration. You, you guys do a lot for indie filmmakers. So this was an indie film documentary. Called and Dumbstruck, and you can get it on Amazon. So you can indeed. It's still playing. And uh, my wife's mother was a ventriloquist, or still is, and fairly shy. And the first time I met her, she didn't say very much at all. And I became really fascinated by, by her because when she got out of her puppets, she suddenly came alive in a way that I, I, I couldn't even imagine having spent the last several hours with her. And now she was raunchy and the puppets telling these crazy jokes and asking us about our love life. And then when she told us that there's this convention in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, I said, I, I got to go and, and see this. So Lindsay and I put together a crew and wound up, you know, you think it's going to be a one week project, then it became a one year project, then it became a two and a half year project. Um, but we were able to put together a really fascinating film that I'm very proud of about what it's like to be a, a working ventriloquist in, you know, Corsicana, Texas or uh, Mansfield, Ohio. And I got a real kick out of following these quirky characters and wanted to do more of that in my, you know, writing as well as the more serious characters. And I mean, I wouldn't even say the West one was serious characters, but the subject matter certainly had more gravitas to it. So, but Sleepy Hollow now is another kind of uh, fantasy. <laughs> um, so how did you, so had you, but, how did that come about to you? Did they approach you or did you, did you know? Uh, there's a woman, Heather Caden, who was an executive at Warner Brothers when I was on the West Wing. And we always got along really well. And we had, uh, I worked with her on a couple of other shows, uh, Warner Brothers. And she was then running the company that created uh, Sleepy Hollow with uh, Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi. And I pitched them earlier in the year, a science fiction show about an alien and some of the elements and certainly some of the themes were very similar to the Sleepy Hollow, but totally different sort of universe. And uh, we kept in touch and, you know, they, they couldn't do that show because they had already sold Sleepy Hollow to Fox. And then I went on and I did another show for NBC and literally an hour after my pilot for NBC, I found out that it was not going to go to series and I just, you know, was sort of crushed and recovering and thinking, oh, what next? I get a call from Heather. Hey, we hear you're available now. You know, you want to hear if you want to go watch a cut of Sleepy Hollow. So I watched it that night, met with them the next day. It was, you know, it was bunkers and amazing. And again, like one of the things that really resonated for me was the idea of a soldier who fought in the Revolutionary War and had all of these ideas and ideals about the founding of our country, and then awakes in then 2012 and it sees what has become of America. And so he gets to do all this commentary about everything that he sees. And I thought that was an incredibly smart, deft way of, of approaching kind of some social commentary all within the world of a, you know, a mashup of tones of horror and comedy and American mythology. So it was just a really, really fun ride all the way through. Well, what was your favorite episode that you, hmm. what was your favorite episode of Sleep Hollow? 
My favorite episode was probably the season finale to season two, where we got to flip everything and have Nicole Bahari's character go back in time to 1776 and appear and and as a you know a black woman who was in law enforcement in 2015 suddenly in that world trying to rescue Ichabod Crane I thought was a really great challenge to write and um, was it was really fun to kind of recreate those sets in that world and she got to meet Benjamin Franklin who was played by Tim Busfield and uh, just uh, that was a lot of fun everything about that episode was fun. And then let's talk a little bit about White Collar. I mean, the, the hits just keep on happening. White Collar, I mean, big hit. It still resonates. Talk about White Collar, the premise of White Collar, and um, what your role in it was. White Collar, the show that was a little bit like, if you imagine, catch me if you can, in the last five minutes of that uh, movie, the two lead characters, Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio, sort of say, there's like a coda where they say, oh, they, the two of these team up and help solve crimes together. And so that's essentially what White Collar was, where you have a world-class con man who played by Matt Bomer, just, you know, genius. And he added so much to that role, uh, teamed up with Tim Decay, who's an FBI agent, and the two of them have this unlikely partnership um, where they work to solve some of the most difficult and challenging white collar crimes. And again, it getting, you know, it was a love letter to New York in a lot of ways, shot beautifully by, by our crew there. And there was a lot of humor. You know, we had Tiffany Thiessen, who's amazing. Willie Garson, who, uh, you know, from Sex and the City, just a phenomenal actor and, again, eccentric and quirky in all the right ways. So it was just a, a great cast, really fun. And I had not spent a lot of time in New York prior to that show, but getting to go out to New York for, you know, a few weeks at a time to work with them was just, just a, a dream. And then you had Diane Carroll in it, too. Oh, yeah. One of the true greats. Yeah, we played one of the, I think it was a really brilliant move in the pilot. The character Neil Caffrey is let out of prison to solve uh, this case that Tim is working on. And, and that's, that's Matt Bomer. Right? Matt Bomer, correct. He plays Neil Caffrey. So Tim Decay's character says, you know, you have like a hundred bucks and that's what you're going to get for uh, room and board. You know, like you're you're basically still in prison. You can't stay right now. He goes to a flea market, uh, you know, to buy some vintage clothes and runs into Diane Carroll, who turns out, you know, her husband recently passed away. He's got all these incredibly stylish clothes. And by the way, now she, you know, she's a little lonely. So why not have Matt Bomer move in to, to uh, her, you know, top floor of her place? And so he ends up for the same rent getting this incredible views of the city. And, you know, it was one of those scenes, it was actually one of the scenes that I really like gravitated to, decided this is a show I'd love to work on because how does somebody do that? How do you, you know, certain people just things always work out for. And 
Neil Caffrey had this confidence and this ability to charm that I found a great juxtaposition against, you know, an FBI agent who's kind of a family man, but believes in these very strict rules. And, you know, you can't just go live in somebody else's house, even if they have space for it. That's just not how the world works. And what about, okay, and I'm going back to Willie Garson because he was just a wonderful member of the Creative Coalition. And just, he really was. You know, just so great. So what about working with Willie? He was in almost every episode, I think, right? Willie was. He was in every episode. Talk about his character a little bit. <laughs> so, he played Neil Caffrey's partner in crime. That prior to him going to prison, you know, he had his uh, ear to the ground. Always kind of knew what was what the chatter was in the world, and had a great you know rapport and shorthand with Neil to do heists on the side. He also was a conspiracy theorist before that was popular, <laughs> and. Also, very, very suspicious of the FBI and, and the law. And so just like brought a lot of fun to every scene that he was in. Working with him, uh, my favorite stories were probably when we got to go to Puerto Rico for season, I want to say the beginning of season four, we did a two-parter in Puerto Rico. Oh, that's fun. It's like when the Brady Bunch went to Hawaii. I still remember that. <laughs> very special episode. Now, in the episode, it was a, a remote African uh, or a, a remote island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, but it was actually Puerto Rico. And so I got to spend a lot of time with them there and we had a blast. And he was always great with coming up with material that he'd want to add into the scene. And, you know, my philosophy is always, as long as it's natural for the actor, and the other actors can roll with it, we should always encourage them and let them do it because it'll end up adding, you know, some spontaneity. It'll feel more natural for them. The challenge is always, you know, every day is a battle against light, daylight, you know, a certain number of scenes and pages you got to get through. So as long as, you know, we have time and as long as it doesn't completely change the meaning of the scene, you know, I love working with actors who who want to, you know, bring something or try different elements in a scene. Now let's talk about Bull. Uh -huh. So it's, a, it's described as a, a dramedy crime show. Bull? Uh, what attracted you to Bull? Bull was inspired by the life of Dr. Phil, uh, who prior to having his talk shows, was a, a trial scientist, meaning his job was to help understand juries, select juries or members of juries, and then figure out how they may be swayed and how they may be voting as the trial goes on and what, what may be the ways to reach them. Because ultimately, every trial is about what these 12 people decide. They are the jury. So I thought that was a novel and fascinating way to look at the American judicial system through the eyes of a jury. And how is our system created? Who gets on juries? How do we influence them? Is that such a thing? And as I started to learn more about it, I was like, this has to be a show one, because, you know, I always look for a show that's going to tell me something new, that's going to shed new light on subject matter that you may think, you know, and there's 
there have been plenty of legal shows, there have been plenty of crime shows. Here was one that really delved into the world of criminal law in a way I'd never seen before. And the characters were just fantastic, too. And, and the actors of Michael Weatherly, right, was the lead. Michael Weatherly was was fantastic. He had just come off of NCIS, I think, 13 years on that show. And he was eager to, you know, take on a new show and do something new. And and uh, and this was and he really created with Paul Adonacio and Dr. Phil, they, they created something that was just a, a really fantastic uh, central character to explore that world. And, oh, so Dr. Phil was in on this. He wasn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Paul Adonacio, who's an amazing writer, um, you may know, for he wrote Quiz Show and um, he wrote Donnie Brasco, just, you know, again, incredible talent. And Amblin Entertainment was also behind this show, which is uh, Steven Spielberg's you know, company. So all of the talent involved in that show just made it like just a, you know, something I was incredibly excited and proud of to be a part of. So as the showrunner for these shows, are you in the writer's room every day? Or is it like what we see on TV, like that show Reboot, we're all like throwing spitballs at each other and all that camaraderie? I love Reboot. I, 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 I can't do a show just about the writer's room. I love those writer's room scenes. That's I, I think they do a, a great job that and, and episodes was another one. That, yeah. Yeah. But so is it really like that? It It is to some extent. Yes. And network television or broadcast television, you know, is, is different than doing a streaming show in broadcast television. Like I remember when so when Bull was was picked up to series uh, which is at the upfronts in New York. Which is what the upfronts is. So again, coming from this this model out of the fifties, when you know car manufacturers uh, had laid out their new line of cars in September, the whole television industry evolved kind of around that. So in May, uh, all of the broadcasters take their wares and their new shows to uh, a big presentation for Madison Avenue and the advertisers. And then that it's, you know, again, it's evolved in the last several years, but traditionally that's where they would decide, the advertisers would decide what money they were spending on shows and which shows. And, and so uh, then those shows would premiere in September. So at the upfronts, they announced bull and put it on. And then we have, something like eight weeks from that point to crew up, build all the sets, hire all the key people with several hundred people, you know, are going to be working on the show as well as hire the writers and start the writer's room. And ideally you want to start production with like four scripts in the can. So that way you know what the first four are, and then you'll have another, you know, three or four in some stage of, development, outlines, story areas that have been approved, that kind of thing. And so the first eight weeks are a little bit of a honeymoon because the only job you have as showrunner, aside from hiring all of those people, is to work with the writers and shaping those first several stories and getting those written. You literally are sitting in a room. Yeah. 
And do you have like the whiteboard and the yellow stickies and several whiteboards? Yes. <laughs> now we've also there's virtual programs now. There's a, a Writers Room Pro and some other uh, apps that are really good for doing Zoom rooms. But at, at the time, and I still think there's a lot to be gained from meeting in person and being in an actual writers room, being able to stare at the board, put up little cards. Um, that's exactly how it works. But as the showrunner, you're having to pop in and out. And then especially after that eight-week period is over, because then it starts production. So now you have a second full-time job, making sure that everything is running smoothly on set. Usually, like Bull, we had a, a fantastic producing director, uh, as well as really great producers. So, you know, you don't have to be there all the time and you can delegate, but you're still responsible for ultimately what gets shot. So you're you're toning uh, the show, the episodes with the directors and, and the cast. You need to go out there a certain amount. There's a lot of approvals of locations and casting and uh, wardrobe, every everything that you see on screen. And then a few days after that, you start your third full-time job, which is the post-production. So the material starts to come in and the editors are editing away and you watch cuts uh, starting with an editor's cut and the director does a cut. And then you come in with the producers, do your producer's cut, goes to the studio and the network ultimately. So did you ever in all your shows, you know, you see it in some of these shows, but did you ever have to come head to head with a network executive to get what you wanted? Ideally, uh, everyone has a similar vision for the show that's laid out in the pilot. And so the creative differences or the creative uh, conflicts are all over just how to, how to execute on that vision of the story. It becomes most challenging when people have different ideas of what the show is or should be. And that can happen too. But oh my God, that was like the best political diplomatic answer. <laughs> like you didn't really answer it. You went to the side, but I feel satisfied. Oh, good. Great. <laughs> so I, you, you shut me down. That was great. <laughs> there are, look, I really enjoy, I, I mean, it's, it's sounds antithetical, but I love getting feedback. I, I want, I'm hoping that things that I write, elicit a response, good, bad, or indifference, the worst, you know, Um, it should provoke a reaction. So that, and that feedback can be helpful. What I really want to know is, is it getting, am I getting the intended response from the material? Is it, is the emotion that I'm trying to elicit coming through from the characters? And if it's not, I really like getting those notes. Like if somebody says, I don't understand this scene, or I don't understand why this character is saying that here, I can fix those. Those are sort of clarity notes. When they say, I understood what they said, I just don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'd rather them have a different feed, you know, that's when it becomes more problematic. And then you decide, oh, different, better way to go. Should I experiment with that? Or should I stick with what I was initially trying to say? And it's a delicate dance, I think, not just among the executives, but also with the actors, because you may have a character in your head that you've been writing or some version of a a relative or somebody that's very dear to you. But then once you cast it, the actor is going to inhabit that role. And you have to allow yourself and that actor 
to let him infuse what, what he brings to it. Because if you fight that and you keep trying to direct him in a certain way or write him in a certain way, that's not natural. I, then everyone gets frustrated and, and it might not be the, the result where you look for. So I, I like, and I, I feel like it's, it's part of your responsibility to watch and listen for that feedback and work with the talent that you get. And, and ultimately, even if it's not exactly what you had in mind at the beginning, it might be something much better. So circling back to what is Umbrella Academy, which seems to marry your love of intrigue and politics and science fiction, you also have some really seasoned actors in there, as well as some who got their first break with Umbrella Academy. How do you make those decisions? So it was cast when I started the show and we were very lucky. What I did really enjoy in season two was again, inspired by the comics. There was a, the second installation was about Dallas in 1963. And we took that and we thought, well, you know, what would it be like for this family to appear these siblings to appear in Dallas in 1963 and try to thwart, you know, the Kennedy assassination or some did, some didn't want to, but each of them had a unique experience um, that we got to play with both history as well as make it deeply personal for each of them in the way that they wove into, you know, a, a piece of American history. The young characters in the show, do you in particular, were any of them, a favorite of yours that you really took under your mental wing to say, I really want to develop this angle. How did you do that? On this show, every one of them was so much fun. I honestly, like it's, it's, I, I don't think that there was any one character that I was like, Oh, this is the one that should be at the center. Number five is amazing. All of them are just so much fun to write for. And it's really the relationships between two or three of them that are the most fun. So it's the conversations that they would have with each other that really allowed, I don't know, some of the, the most, I think, inspirational scene. Out of all the characters that you've written, this entire population of people, who is your favorite? Who did you love writing for? Good, bad, evil? Oh, that's very hard to say. Who's your favorite kid? Okay, I mean... I liked writing for a lot of the West Wing characters because they were the first ones that I, I got to write for um, in fiction. And so, you know, I still think about that John Spencer, uh, Leo McGarry episode that, that I wrote on spec before I had any idea of what I was doing. I love John Spencer so much. <laughs> I'm kind of getting teary-eyed for you saying that. He was such a great guy. The last episode I wrote was called 365 Days, and it was about the first day of the last year of his presidency. And Leo has this line, you know, this this could be our last year. Let's leave it all in the field. And I feel like that's what he did. And that's definitely what, what I try to do is live that way. And so, you know, that that's something that, that sticks with me a lot. And then I had no idea, but the the actual the actor passed about a year or two after after that episode so what would you say what last question what's that piece of advice you give younger mark goffman in the your first day at the west wing you you're in that writer's room not 
in the State Department <laughs> writing about Washington. Did you doubt that you made the right choice or you, what would you say now also as advice? Uh, I didn't doubt I made the right choice. I feel very fortunate that, you know, after it was a welcoming room and it was a room where sort of best ideas win. And I immediately kind of loved that environment and getting to sit with really creative people around a table and banner around ideas and watch episode kind of magically form over a few days. And that feeling I still have every time I get into a writer's room. And I think as a young writer, it's really important to listen to the showrunner, understand his vision for or her vision for the show. And then, you know, so once once you've read that and you're really on course, then start pitching. But I think the mistake is sometimes to pitch prior to really understanding what, what the show is or where the, the direction of the show is. And listening and playing off other people is a big part of the collaboration process in television. And you know, if you want to write novels or movies, or there's plenty of writing that you can do solo, but uh, television writing in particular, what I love is it's, it's a team sport. Well, thank you so much. And now that you've told me everything that you're doing and everything that goes into what you do, I kind of feel guilty about all the time I take up with you, but I do have a good time with you. So, you know, I'm not going to, you know, be calling you any less for advice, but I will be mindful of it. Robin, I'm, I'm here for you anytime in the Creative Coalition, anytime. And so congrats on, on everything you're doing. I, really I can't wait to see the new series. Get it going. <laughs> Coming soon. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode of Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition featuring Mark Goffman. For more information about the Creative Coalition, visit our website at thecreativecoalition.org or visit our social media. That's at the Creative Coalition on TikTok and Instagram and at the Creative C on Twitter.